You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. I cannot wait to dive into this one because my buddy Mitchell Shirk is hopping back on. He has been on before, and if you have listened to any of his stuff, you know that this guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to habitat improvement, enhancing property for deer movement to keep them on your property instead of losing them to all your neighbors. I mean, obviously... It's not a foolproof plan, but he really has a good grasp of what to do in order to help people be successful on big or small chunks of property. And so I actually just went under contract on a 10-acre chunk, and who who do you think I needed to get on the phone with right away? Of course, I've got to wait until July. I mean, that's going to be the tough part, and you're going to hear my frustration probably all throughout this show about having to wait and not being able to get in there and make improvements right now or planning food plots right now. But I'm excited to get a game plan together with Mitchell to pick his brain on what exactly I can do. And if you haven't listened to his stuff yet, you need to get on and look him up. He runs the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. He's also on the Sportsman's Empire Network along with me. That's actually how we first got connected. But this guy does this for a living. I mean... He goes around and tests soil and checks out farmland, and um, he loves taking his agronomist background and converting that to help people in a hunting situation with their food plots. And so I'm I'm pumped. I'm like bursting. If you can't tell my excitement, I, I don't know what else to do for you, but we're going to jump into this one. It's going to be awesome. Let's go. Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay.
All right, guys. So I know that last year was kind of a wild year for censorship for hunters and anglers, but that's why we've partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media censorship. Now, Go Wild is a free social community that was built by outdoors men and women just like me and you. Not only are your photos not censored on Go Wild, they're actually encouraged. And they give you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. And as you earn those points, you can unlock awesome rewards like gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex, and so much more. Check this out, though. If you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. So go visit DownloadGoWild.com to get started. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today is the man, the Mitch, the legend, Mitchell Shirk. What's going on, man? That's quite the introduction, pal. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Uh, I, I figured this was a great time of year to get you on. I know before we kind of hit it a little bit early as far as your area of expertise goes, but you keep popping up on my pages, uh, you know, because we're friends or we follow each other or whatever mm -hmm. the phrase is for that. Um, and you keep popping up and I'm like, man, I need to I need to go back and start talking to a lot of these guys from the network again, because one, everybody benefits when we do that. Two, this is the perfect time of year to be talking about habitat improvements, food plots, dirt work. I mean, whatever we can do to make our ground better for hunting. Um, so that's what we're going to dive into today. Certainly is. And I sure love doing that. It's been kind of interesting because, yeah, I haven't been actively looking to try to do more podcasts than I want to do for my show, but I'm more than willing to do. It was kind of funny. I got asked uh, by a couple other shows and it's been fun. I mean, I love talking about this stuff and um, yeah, <laughs> just uh, just the time of year is exactly right. Yeah, it's it's funny being a podcast host, but then also being asked to be a guest on other people's podcasts. I know I, I was a guest on a couple this week. And in my mind, I was like, oh, I've got a ton of content ready to go for the week, upcoming weeks to launch for people to listen to. And then I realized that most of the recordings that I've done recently were for other people's podcasts. And so I'm <laughs> like, oh, man, I'm behind. Um, but I do appreciate you hopping on. And it's also very timely because we are under contract on 10 acres here in Missouri. And I'm good for you, man. I'm pumped. It's the first chunk of property. It's the first really anything real estate that I have owned. And uh, we've already been out there taking a look, doing perk tests to figure out septic or sewage. Um, today we went out there and uh, a driveway got put in with a culvert. And that was all stuff that had to go go into place before we actually sign at the beginning of July, but it's just cool being out there and working on something that is about to be mine. Well, and the thing I like about that is you'll get that all set up, get a nice place set up. And then it sounds like that the next sportsman's empire retreat is going to be at your place. I sure hope it is. I really do. <laughs> and if it's not there, I've got a couple other places we could make it happen, but uh, we, I found out today, actually, my wife had posted something on social media saying like, Hey, we're under contract. And this is like a week ago that she posted it. And this lady that we know that her, my wife and I have both worked with in the past 
uh, was like, hey, is it off of this road? And she's like, yeah, it is. It turns out it's this lady and her husband's old property. And the people that we're buying it from, they've got tree stands up all over on, on their property because they're our neighbor and then on our property. And I was like, hey, so do you guys hunt? And they're like, no, we don't hunt. We're, we're not opposed to it, but we just don't do it. All those tree stands were left up from the last people. And so I'm like, okay, perfect. So now I'm going to talk to this lady that we worked with and get the scoop because I know that her husband hunts and I'm going to find out what kind of caliber deer they've got out there, how many there are, if he did any type of management before they sold it. And uh, I I feel like it's not very often you get kind of the, the inside scoop on something like that. No, it's not. And it's almost like you're playing a little bit of a game. Like at the end of the day, we love to go hunting because we enjoy it. It's it's all the things it's you enjoy being in creation. It's peaceful and yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, we've, we've built up all this time and effort around podcasting because it's all about strategy because we're nuts about it. And when it comes to something like that and learning the area, you got to play a game with, with people trying to pick people's brains and get as much information as possible. Try not to give to I still say when you're trying to hunt the best deer in the neighborhood, it is a little bit of a competition. I mean, is that why we do it? No, but I'm a competitive person by nature. And it's just, uh, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And I, I'm curious to find out who around me hunts. Cause I know the people to the South of me do not the people to the North of me. I would be very surprised if, if they do, um, just in hearing from our other neighbors about them. But there's a guy right across the road, and this guy has hundreds of acres, serious improvements that he's done. I mean, he put basically a lake on his property. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious to know what he's got going on there. But I'm going to break down my property a little bit for you so you kind of have an idea of how it goes. I mean, it's a long, it's a long 10 acres, so it's not like a perfect block, but it runs east to west. And it's probably between 350 and 450 feet deep, uh, north to south. And then lengthwise, we're just under 1,500 feet. But on the south east corner, it's two acres of field. Mm. And that's the only opening on it. On the, like, all the way across the north, and then basically the entire west third or two-thirds of the property is all woods with a deep deep valley running through it and the other nice part about it is that the woods on the north part of the property on the far eastern border it butts up to the road and it's the only spot of woods that butts up to the road for about a half mile either direction and when we went to look at it the first time, there was a dead deer out there. And I was like, I would, I knew from the map, just looking at it on Onyx and on Zillow, that it was a natural funnel for deer to cross the road right there from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure enough, there was a roadkill deer right at the edge of the property. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of interesting pieces going on there. So, I mean, the thing I always look at, I had... I had a few properties that I looked at this year, just some friends or, you know, friends of friends, you know, given my information and I went and walked those properties with people. And I'm always trying to zoom out as far as I can, because, you know, 10 acres, 
two acres, 40 acres, whatever, you know, those small properties, you're not encompassing the 365, 24-7 uh, movement of the local herd. So I'm trying to figure out what do you have as an advantage in your property that we can be, I guess, trying to sway that amount of time spent on your property during daylight hours during hunting season. So I guess what I'd be curious about, because I'm really unfamiliar with your area, is it is it kind of flat where it where you're at? Is there any topography? And like when you zoom out, what's the in your mind, what's the ratio of like ag land, uh, the type of ag land, the type of wood structure, field structure? Like what does that kind of look like? So in this specific area, I mean, we do have a lot of ag land here in Missouri, but really in this part of the state, there's a lot of pasture, a lot of cattle pasture, people with horses, not nearly as many cornfields or soybean fields or alfalfa fields. And so the, the way that this property lines out in comparison to basically everything for a couple miles around it directly south of the property the the woods only extend for probably 300 yards and then to the north and west of the property it extends much much further um, there's a decent sized creek that runs probably 200 yards off the property line and yeah so basically we're we're almost like the southeast point on a giant chunk of woods uh, as far as topography goes it's the elevation change on one property is probably only around 50 to 75 feet so i mean there's definitely oh. hills and valleys but it's nothing serious um on this property specifically from the basically dead center on the east side to dead center on the west side it is just a ravine that runs through the woods the entire way. Mm. Um, on the south end of it, it's a gradual drop down to a somewhat wet bottom. On the north side of it, it's very steep. I mean, like sledding hill type type style. Um, gotcha. But yeah, as far as as far as the overall, it's kind of funny because we really are. I mean, if you look, if you were to zoom out, and I can send you. Uh, the location on onyx or something for you to take a look at but sure if you zoom out we really are about as far south as you can get with with decent wooded cover and in driving around the area i haven't seen any crop fields for probably a mile in any direction oh wow and so that's where i get excited <laughs> i'm like okay so i mean right now they're eating basically natural brows or or acorns or anything falling off the trees but there's not much in the way of cornfields or bean fields hmm, that's interesting i could sort of relate to that and anchor around a little bit but uh, what's the what's the woodland out like there like i'm assuming you probably have a dominant oak forest but like did you get the chance to walk the woods and like kind of see what that general makeup is and like is there different is there different age of the the forest like was it ever cut at one time or is there different structure going on that you've got like large oak trees versus you know some kind of medium size softwood hardwood mix to shrubs and like what's that kind of like 
Yeah, so it is actually a really good mix age and variety wise. I mean, we've got cedars out there. We've got giant, giant oak trees. We've got some really small saplings. And you can tell that in certain spots as you go into the woods that someone had cut a path at one point because you'll just see a strip of really thick growth uh, kind of on the on the ground floor and a bunch of saplings growing up there. But then you'll have patches where every tree is 18 to 24 inches wide or more. And so um, as far as all the different trees go, I haven't, I haven't put a ton of time into it. I mean, I walked about 50 yards into the woods and said, Hey, uh, this is a serious contender for properties that we're looking at. And it just, nice. just so happens that I've got friends. Uh, I've got one friend, he's seven minutes away probably three and a half miles as the crow flies. I've got another friend who's 12 minutes away and both of them have had really, really nice deer on their properties. I put cameras out on both um, because I've had hunting access on them. And yeah, it's just a really good deer or it's a really good area for deer movement and uh, deer class, I guess. That's something to be excited about. I mean, when you get on a piece of new dirt, regardless, I mean, it's always like you get all these ideas in your head and that's exciting, but it sounds like kind of what you're telling me, it kind of has the nuts and bolts to, to really work with something. I'm, I was, I was kind of cool and interested to, when you talked about, there's like, you said there's like two acres on the Southeast side that's wooded or uh, I'm sorry, is, is fields. Yeah. Is it like old pasture land or was it once cropland or like, what, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean when you say field? So it looks like old pasture land. Um, when I had the perk test guy come out, he was very surprised. We dug probably 35 inches, 36 inches down. And we were just taking a look at the, at the soil. And he's like, normally I run into clay pretty quick here. I mean, in Missouri, we have a ton of rock, a lot of clay, um, he thought he was going to hit the hard pan even faster than he did. And he's like, dude, you've got like 18 inches of decent topsoil. And I don't find that anywhere around here. And so that made me think that at one point it was probably crops, but it's probably been 15 to 20 years at least just because now we know, we know the owners for the past 15 years um, and, and none of them had crops on it. That's good. It sounds like it's going to be something you can definitely work with and, and mold and shape into what you're looking to do. Um, I guess my biggest thing too, like, you know, you're, uh, you guys bought this pl- or in the process of buying this place, you got, you got kids. I mean, I, I run into this with my buddies too. Like I, I so easily get blinded by my own ambition but I, I realized that, you know, I have to make this ours and not just mine. So I'm, I'd be curious, like, you know, what do you have envisioned as you kind of evolve? So I've, I've kind of adopted the mindset of if I've got property, I'm going to use it and I'm going to use it for everything. You know, if, if I told my kids they couldn't ride their four wheelers or dirt bikes out there just so that I could maybe have a few more deer hang out on the property. I just, I feel like that would be very selfish of me. And maybe one day when I have like strictly a hunting property, I can do that. But I've also noticed that you can go one of two ways. And I don't remember if we talked about this the last time we got together, but I feel like you can either make a serious presence and make deer almost comfortable. You, you get them used to you being there and not seen as a threat. 
or you can completely stay out, mask your scent as much as possible every time you go in. The nice thing is it sounds like that first part where you're conditioning the the deer to human presence has already happened for me because the neighbors who split the land and, um, and are selling us part of it, they drive around on their, on their little golf cart. They've got like one of those turf golf carts with the, with the bed in the back of it. Mm. Um, they drive around all the time. They're out there constantly doing work on the property, maintenancing trails through the woods. And they said there's deer all over the place. They see them come out in their backyard constantly. And it sounds like because of how many houses are around, although everybody owns 10 acres or more, um, because of the presence of houses there, the deer are just kind of familiar with people, with animals. Um, and so I'm hoping to play that to my benefit. That's an interesting point. You know, I've heard so many different schools of thought when it comes to that, that mindset of conditioning deer and how do you go about accessing your property and what can you get away with and I don't think there's a one size fits all but one thing that I have learned and I I believe this is just my train of thought what I believe to be true is you can condition deer to get used to human activity to accessing with ATVs UTVs pickup trucks things like that you can condition them to getting used like if let's say you've got uh let's just say you've got a farm lane it goes around the perimeter of your of your property and it's not uncommon from the hours of i don't know three to five p.m that you guys are going to take a ride around that i've i've seen it time and time again where you can drive past deer and it seems like you can do it most of the time throughout the calendar year and you know they'll watch you drive by and as long as you don't stop they'll just kind of mind their mind their business and and it doesn't seem like it bugs them too bad but in all the years that i've done that different properties i have never with the exception of it being deep in the rut and you you get a buck a a good buck that comes into your property as a hot dough close by or you just caught him off guard he was in an area that he's not normally in i have never ever driven around a property and seen a mature buck stand by and watch you drive by. I don't believe that a place that has that kind of traffic, I don't believe that consistently mature buck tolerate that. I think doe groups and fawn groups and even young bucks, they'll do that. I mean, I've seen it time and time again. You know, I, I go across oh my gosh, I don't know how many thousands of acres soil testing for farmers. I pretty much just drive around in the fields with a four-wheeler or a side-by-side and pull soil tests. And I've gone through fence rows that deer scared the living daylights out of me because I stopped right next to where they were bedded. And I've also driven through and like seen them on a side hill, just watching me pull cores from a distance. And every single time it's usually a, a year and a half old buck or, or a doe and fawn and stuff. And I've never, ever seen that when it's a mature buck. And I'll, I'll tell you from my experience with my, with our hunting properties, we used to do a lot more accessing with equipment than we did by foot. And we, we, we thought we were getting away with, we thought we were conditioning deer to doing that success we wanted and we were trying to shoot the best buck we possibly could in the area and we just weren't keeping them on our land in daylight activity so what we switched we basically we 
used the property from about January, February through August, the way we want to ride around everywhere. But from about one month prior to the season, that traffic all stops and we have our set access the way it needs to be. Some of the perimeter we can get around with a vehicle and not do too much intrusion to the interior, but we can kind of use our foot traffic and uh, play the wind, have it that they can't see us, hear us, or smell us. We try to have screening, uh, play the wind, and uh, walk clean, quiet trails. So that way we don't have an impact throughout that time of the year. But, you know, I say that there's so many different properties that's set up differently. I mean, you think about it, certain places where you're at that have less, you know, Missouri has a pretty good hunting pressure, but I think you know, Kansas, Iowa, and some of those states that have a little bit less hunting pressure compared to Missouri, Wisconsin, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, all those states. Um, you know, you can, it's just a different animal when you have less hunting pressure in the state compared to that. Plus the amount of cover. I mean, some of the places, I mean, you watch any, any big name uh, hunting show that's in the Midwest who, man, some of them guys, I had I adore what they're doing, but the, the ratio of cover to fields and, and where they're driving around stuff like it just, it doesn't always fit like your 10 acre property that you have, Dan, and my, you know, two acre property that I have behind my house or the 10 acre property I have 45 minutes from here. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. It's so hard to describe in a podcast form, but I mean, that's, that's just kind of been my experience on the whole conditioning deer thing yeah and that makes sense i mean i've i've had plenty of encounters with deer and you know i haven't really put put it into my mind about the mature bucks like not running into mature bucks when i'm out there on the property but when it comes to does and younger bucks like you said i'll be out there checking a trail camera on on some of the other property i have access to and i'll have a deer walk out of the woods 40 yards from me and stand there and stare at me because I'm out there three to four days a week, whether it's because I'm, I'm out there checking cameras or I'm doing food plot maintenance, or I'm out there fishing on the pond. And I guess I've never really thought about not having those close encounters with mature whitetail. And maybe it's because I just always assumed, you know, big mature bucks, <laughs> there's not as many of them. So I'm just not going to have as many encounters period, but it might just be that they're not going to tolerate my presence wherever they're hanging out all the time. That's just been my kind of, ex my experience. I, I agree. There aren't a lot, you know, from where I come from, if you, if you shoot a four or five year old buck, like you, you did something that's a big deal because they are definitely the hardest animal to find and kill and getting them that they get to that age they're not stupid by any means i mean they're still a white tail and they don't have this giant like realm of intellect that we can't fathom I, I still think they're a deer but they've been around a few seasons they've gone through the rigmarole of hunting season they've figured out how to be safe so what i think is i have to figure out how do i take this very small property that i have and in the realm of his two or three square mile home range, whatever that is, how do I take that and um, make it that he wants to spend daylight hours here? He feels safe enough that as the daylight progresses, he can lay here, browse here, and maneuver through here, dawn and dusk, and I can get a chance to kill him with some high, high, 
high quality hunting strategy. You know, I kind of think about that with the deer I killed two years ago. We were talking about conditioning people. The deer I killed two years ago behind my house here, it's a neighborhood, but there's bottlenecks of, of, you know, field edges and wood lots, fence rows and stuff like that. And there's kids playing, there's dogs barking, there's the stuff, but like, there's a, there's like a line or an intrusion line that if you cross over, you're going to alert them. They're used to it to a certain degree. And when you cross that, uh, that that's when bad things can happen. You know, I watch deer all the time funnel through my property from my porch and my dogs will run right to the end of their electric fence and bark and carry on. And those deer will watch them and they wag their tail and go about their business. It's like, it's somehow they, they just know through their, their incredible senses that, you're not beyond be, you know, they're not in danger at that sense. So yeah. I just take that in those small properties and just think, okay, how can I mimic that and not put too much intrusion when I enter this property and still hunt those natural movements? And then how do I enhance those movements to keep them there a little bit longer and have a little more attraction? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm going to, you know, I, I really like what you, what you said earlier about, how you guys will use the property, you'll access it. And then a month before you really play your movements, right? You're not going in from weird angles. You're making sure that you're going in, not being seen, heard, or smelt. And I think that might be uh, a strong part of the tactic that I use going into this year, because I do want my kids to be out there using it, you know, but in all reality, this is going to be more property than they've had. <laughs> had to run around on anyways. And so <laughs> like a two acre field, that's going to be heaven on earth to them when it comes to riding their little electric dirt bikes around or their, or their power wheels. And so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm excited to get some cameras up. Um, but I really want to pick your brain also on this time of year, uh, for myself or really for anybody else listening as, as we're coming out of the frost, like we just were in Colorado and it, it snowed on us like two or oh, three wow. weeks ago. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not, I forgot about that after moving back to Missouri. Yeah. It was like the end of May and it was snowing on us. Um, but now that most of that's done, people are either already done putting in food plots or looking at putting in food plots. What should, what should the everyday guy who might have who knows five acres up to a hundred acres, what should they be doing in preparation for this fall when it comes to food? That's a great question. Um, you know, from the perspective, you know, right now we're, what the heck is it? It's the, we're, we're in like the second week of June here and pretty much all the, the spring planting stuff that we've had, we're, we're wrapping up with at least where I'm at here in Southeast Pennsylvania, there's places that we're still planting and there's places that, you know, throughout the country, guys are still planting uh, corn, soybeans and summer annuals. I just got done finishing planting a summer annual mix blend in, uh, in our food plots. And, you know, I, I think the biggest thing now is if, if, if you have last minute food plot plans, as far as the corn, the soybeans, the summer annual blends, you can still do them, but I kind of have now that they're in the ground and aside from the general summer maintenance that I, I do, depending on the species and stuff, I'm kind of getting off of the, my food plot kick, believe it or not, to, to wrap up some of the other projects that I have. But I mean, as far as 
prepping for food plots in this fall, you know, first of all, what kind of equipment do you have? I mean, are you kind of doing the, the no-till or the, the minimalist poor man food plot? You know, do you have some type of equipment? Do you, um, are you getting people to plan them for you? I mean, those are all questions you got to consider. The one thing I, I will say is if you are trying to be as minimalistic as possible, but still grow a good food plot, you know, the things that you can be doing now, June, July, August is, prepping the soil to plant in that August, September timeframe for a fall annual food plot. And you, you don't need a disc. You don't need big, heavy tellers. You really just need to make sure you can get bare soil and seed to touch that. And I think one of the best ways you can do that is just a sprayer. You know, I'm not anti-herbicide by any means. I like I like to use it as a tool. I'm, I'm trying in our food plot side we can, but we still use it sometimes. But if you spray in June or July, if, you know, like, you know, take your, your two acres there. You know, we didn't talk about the positioning and stuff like that, but let's say somewhere in that two acres of field, you're like, man, I want to put a food plot here. One of the best things you can do right now is shape that out where you want it and spray it dead. And even if you've got you know, warm season grasses and stuff like that, that are, you know, anywhere from knee high up to your chest. If you spray that dead and allow that to desiccate, you'd be surprised how quickly you will start to see the soil through all that thatch. So I would spray it dead, let it go into July, August. And depending on what grows back and stuff, maybe you do that one more time and you spray it dead again, if, if more grasses and other stuff comes up. But if you spray it once or twice and then you get it ready for that August time frame, you might have a seed bed that you can broadcast seed with, you know, even just throwing it with your hands. But uh, I usually use a, like an earthway seeder or something. You can broadcast small seeds like clovers and brassicas and uh, cereal grains, stuff like that. You can broadcast right in it. And if you've got a like a colda packer or a chain or a drag or something, you can do that. But the best, best thing is just do it right before rain and you'd be amazed how good of a food plot you can grow. All right, guys, I need to take a quick second to tell you about a product that I've been using for quite a while now. It's called Bull Elk Beard Oil. If you've spent any amount of time in the outdoors, whether it's on the mountain, in the marsh, or in the woods, you've felt the effects of the wind, the sun, and the cold on your face. What this product does, it helps you look better, feel more confident, and it helps your beard keep its moisture. Not to mention, it smells great, so now my wife can't complain as much after I come home from a long week of elk hunting. Now I need to tell you, I've gotten to know Brian the founder over the past couple months, and he is an awesome guy. Brian made sure that all of these oils are made out of clean products right here in the USA. He also loves to give back to the outdoor community, whether that's through fundraisers for public land acquisitions, or even helping donate money to cover the surgery cost of duck dogs. He's an amazing guy, and he makes an amazing product. So go check out bullelkbeardoil.com and be sure to check out the subscription options so that you don't have to run out of your favorite facial hair product. Plus, you can use the code NOMADIC and get 20% off your order. That's really good to know. I mean, I at this point, I don't have any equipment. 
and everything I've done so far on the other properties I hunt. So I've got access to around 300 acres of properties here in Missouri, most of which I can't put anything on because it's being leased out also for cattle and crops. And so, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have soybeans almost everywhere that I hunt. Um, but I, I've, when I've done food plots in the past, it has all been like hand spread with hand tools and, you know, whether I'm pulling it out of the bag and tossing it by hand or, um, I I've had a couple of the real small, like one gallon, um, seed spreaders and that's been fine. But, uh, I like what you said about killing all the grasses now, you know, spraying them, getting them to, getting them to drop and then basically preparing for August, September timeframe. Um, is that, is that almost a, an herbicide way of doing, have you seen Dr. Grant Woods and his whole crimping method that he talks about? Absolutely. I'm very familiar with that. So that method, he, he calls it the Buffalo system and he's yep. using, um, he's using plants to combat um, and, and manage soil residue and then prepare it for the next seed. And he, he's using a drill. Um, that is a fantastic system. Believe it or not, one thing that's really cool about the Northeast uh, in, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get on a slight agriculture tangent for just a second in the northeast we use a lot of cover cropping so we'll take a corn or soybean off and then we'll plant uh basically some of the stuff you'd see in a food plot like we plant rye and wheat or triticale then maybe we'll have an annual clover like a crimson or maybe we have a radish in there or something along those lines that stuff that overwinters or sort of overwinters and then we'll let that go and we'll plant right through that in May, June, just like you see uh, Dr. Woods do. And then uh, most of the time, my growers are using some herbicide, but we're at the point where we're, we're trying to get where we can use the least amount of herbicide possible. And I will tell you, my growers who do that method, even though they're still using herbicide, they are using significantly less herbicide than your conventional let the field go fallow over winter and then plant your next cash crop. So let's translate that back into food plots. You know, we can tolerate in the summer, we can tolerate a little bit more summer annual weeds like a lamb's quarter, a pigweed, a ragweed, a mare's tail, stuff like that, because they have wildlife benefit too. Um, but, uh, you know, you can uh, you can build soil with that, and th those those winter annual plants like the rye, the crimson clover, stuff like that. When they get up and they head out and, and get to that maturity stage, and you can crimp them right over top, a a, a drill can go right through that, basically like uh, brushing your hair with a comb. It just weaves right through that big tall thatch and places seed in a little slot and, and comes right up through that thatch and you've got that mulch bed in between the rows it's it's really cool i really like that method um you know dr woods if you've watched him and watched growing deer for a long time he will make it seem very easy and i'm not going to tell you that it's hard but it it takes a mind adjustment and you got to be dedicated to it because it's a very different 
way of food plotting or farming than what your 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 mind is used to yeah that makes sense and i mean even with that the crimping method you know you have to have specialized tools in order to be able to do that but believe Uh, it or not i'm gonna i'm gonna crimp a little food plot behind my house and i'm gonna do it with a little foot crimp i made i'm literally just taking a, a piece of old deck board that i screwed um i screwed a little like one by like piece of trim a little edge and i just made rope to it and i'm gonna just go through i broadcast the seed into it and then use that and then just like push the 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 crop down with my foot and step on it and that little lip that i screwed into the deck board is gonna kind of crimp the the rye and break the stems which cuts off the cuts off the movement of nutrients and water through the through the stalk and, and, and terminates the plant when you do it at the right time so you can do it with minimal equipment it's just you you need to it takes an adjustment takes some tweaking the, the, the biggest thing people screw up with in no-till like that or doing that is they usually have way too much material like you, you've seen doc if you've brought him up you've seen the videos where he goes through and plants and he'll be like brushing through this giant mat of vegetation to get to the trench. And I swear it's like eight inches thick. <laughs> it's like huge. And if, if you're doing that with um, just minimal equipment, like broadcasting and then using a foot crimper and you're just broadcasting on the soil and you put that giant mat over top of the seed, uh, you're going to probably have some some rough experiences because it's too thick and you don't have a nice, perfectly placed seed trench from a drill uh, that's favoring it to come up through at that slot. You know, it's just there's no rhyme or reason for a, a plant to come up through that giant thatch. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think I think especially for my first year of of trying to get serious about this, um, when it comes to my own property, like any information like that is super helpful. Like I've thought about the whole like redneck engineering coming up with my own system to make a crimper. Um, I I've even thought about filling a 50 gallon drum with concrete and welding a couple pieces of angle iron on there and rolling it behind a lawnmower, you know, but, um, to hear, to hear, you know, somebody with your level of expertise and, and your experience doing that, I think that's a, that's going to be of great benefit so that I don't go and, like you said, have an eight inch mat of grass on top and not really have anything pop up through it because I'm just hand broadcasting it. You know, for anybody starting out with food plots or if they're, if they've done food plots, but they're just trying to, you know, learn a little bit more or something from my perspective, um, if you, let, let's just go with the thought that you have an ATV or a UTV or some kind of equipment like like that let's just say that's your even if you've got a a lawnmower that you can get around if you get a lawnmower that you can drag something the pieces of equipment that are most important to me are a a quality broadcast cedar and i like those earthway models and i'm not not throwing that out there because they paid me to say it i just like them but uh, i like those earthway model cedars and uh a quality sprayer uh, if uh, you know i recommend most people try to use some herbicide and work your way toward not using it because it's it's not just as easy as saying well i'm not going to use herbicide 
uh, there's there's ways you can go about reducing it, but uh, I I think it's a, a needed tool. And then the last thing would be a coal to packer. You know, if you've got an ATV or a tractor or something that you can pack seeds, coal to packing ultimately is one of the best soils seed to soil contact methods. So you can do all that. And you notice I didn't talk about a tiller, a disc, a chisel, a, a drag of some sort to break seed. You don't need that. That's just breaking dirt. People just like to recreational break dirt because, and don't get me wrong, I've done it. It's fun. Like I've been the guy who's been on a chisel and a tractor and is making a dirt. And like, you see like one weed that made it through in the top corner and you spin the tractor around and, and you make sure you go across it. So it's pulverized. I mean, and, and I, it's, it's funny, like the, the farms that I go to now in, in my work, a lot of the landowners that they that the farmers rent from were once farmers. And I'll never forget, I had this old timer come out and was complaining about these soybeans that the farmer grew that were no-till. And he's like, uh, back in my day, we used to moldboard plow everything. He said, and if I did a bad job, he said, you know, when I was the hired man, he said, if I did a bad job, they made me go out with a torch and burn up all that leftover residue. And I'm like, Oh my word, how times have changed. It's so not necessary, please. Like, it's just, it's just different that meant to us. So like, I get the breaking dirt thing, but you know, if, if you tried to go into that giant grass field and make a food plot via tillage, you'd learn pretty quickly. You need something kind of heavy to break through all that thatch and turn that dirt. I'm not just talking about like a four wheeler with a pull behind disc. Like I've, I've been on some tractors with, with some decent equipment that it took me some time to break that up to get good seed, you know, soil exposed. So uh, I, I would lean more towards, you know, probably just trying to get the, the junk grass out of the way so you can get a food plot in this fall. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think it, it it's the waiting game right now for me that I think is really killing me because I technically don't take over the property until July 6th. And so mm. like as much as I want to get out there and do improvements on it and stuff, like right now it's more making sure it's a good site to build all of that. And I don't want to intrude on the current owners while they're still the owners. And so, uh, but you better believe I'm going to hit the ground running the day that I have full access to the property. I will be out there. And I think I'm going to go with that method that you're talking about spraying herbicides. And, you know, if I have to do a second round of it uh, down the road, I will, but trying to, trying to go as minimal as possible right now until maybe I do get equipment down the road. Can you access, like, be on the property before you close, like, that you can actually plan ahead where you want to do stuff? Yes, I can. And it, and I don't want it to sound like they're completely closed off. Like, we were out there today. I was out there yesterday. And, you know, I had people meeting me out there, uh, some county, county people for doing the percolation test. And then um, today getting the culvert in the driveway put in. Um, and so it's not like they're telling me I can't be out there. I think they're very open to it. Um, so yes, I can 100% be out there and start planning stuff out. Good deal. Yeah. Hopefully that means you can have it all planned out. And if you close on July 6th, that means you can hit the ground running July 6th or July 7th and, and get the ball rolling. However you decide you need to need to plan that property out. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to get back in there and, and really, 
walk the whole thing. I mean, I've walked it, I've walked it twice, not the entire property, but uh, bits and pieces of it each time, you know, time crunches with realtors and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I can't wait to get out there, do an actual survey. And I've got a lot of friends here that are into, um, you know, even the plant identification and figuring out what you're missing on the property. And a lot of them aren't even for hunting reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, One guy, he does it all for, for quail and grouse which we don't have much of around here. And uh, he just got in with uh, a landowner who wanted quail and grouse on his property. So anyways, I've got some resources close by, some friends of mine that can come out and help me, help me figure out exactly what it's missing. But to have all of this information going into actually purchasing the property is going to be hugely beneficial, especially I just think it'd be cool to have a food plot right there at the back of the at the back of the field where I can walk out the back porch and just watch deer feeding and have not a care in the world. It is for sure. Um, you know, uh, one you there. One thing I actually like to do is I like to screen my food plots. I like to put something on that the almost like a separation between potential danger or potential stress and that attractive food source you know i have a food plot right behind my house like you literally if you took three steps from my yard you uh you'd be in the food plot uh well it's more than that because of this amount of screening but i've i've established a screen line that separates you know basically my yard and living quarters and the food plot and like, of course the deer know it's on the other side, but there's, there's a, there's definitely an element of reduced stress when they can't see down there. And if, if they can't see down there, it just, it really helps it. And I, I think that stress reduction is, is one more like step to getting deer to use that food plot in daylight hours. And if they're in there in food, well, first of all, you have an opportunity to kill them on a food plot, but I means they're moving on your property in daylight and then you have probably a whole lot of other stand locations or like a group of stands around your 10 acres that relates to the food plot and they're moving on your property in daylight but I mean if if they're not willing to come to your food plot in daylight hours because they're too stressed because there's a an element of getting chased off by people or they're going to see people during day, so they'll just wait till night. I think that that is just one way of helping enhance that huntability, so to speak. Yeah, that makes sense. What What are you using for that screen? I think I tried to do a screen one time, and it did not go well at all. Oh. I, had a, I had a small food plot, and I don't – correct me if this is wrong, but it was like Egyptian – yeah egyptian wheat egyptian wheat okay i was gonna say that or like sorghum or something like that Mm -hmm. um maybe it was a combination of the two anyways i i tried to plant it around a food plot and it didn't take at all i think the tallest the tallest plants i had in there were about knee high maybe up to mid thigh and i don't know what i did wrong but i also know i rushed it because i was late to the party when it came to getting stuff planted 
Yeah, so a couple things can go wrong with screens. So you talked about the Egyptian wheat and sorghum. Um, I've used that one. I actually used that the year that I, I killed that uh, that buck behind my house here. It was the first year that I had the property and did anything. And that's like the only screening you can do like year one. And it, it's going to be tall enough that you can do a lot of the other screens two, three, four years to get fully established. And I took my property back here as an opportunity to tinker and test with a couple of um, screens that are available. You know, I've done, I've done switchgrass. I've done, uh, I've done the Egyptian wheat and sorghum. I've never done the miscanthus grass. And I never felt like miscanthus was the best option for most cases, but I mean, why not try it? So just looking at what I have back here, I have some established switch grass. And then in front of that, I did plant some miscanthus rhizomes and the, the oldest ones are in year three. And then I had some uh, and, and are only in, they're going into their second year and they're kind of varying heights and varying thicknesses. And I, I learned a lot about that, but the, you know, let's stick on the, the annual screening, the Egyptian wheat and the sorghum. So the, the, the biggest things with those plants is number one, if you have grass weeds that come up like if you have a giant mat of grass and you don't take care of that first and you've got some kind of perennial grass that keeps coming back they will choke out your sorghum egyptian wheat whatever very quickly and like there's not sorghum and egyptian wheat are grasses so it's not like you can just pick some herbicide that's kills a grass and not kill your sorghum and egyptian wheat so you got to take care of those first and there's a couple ways you can do that you can use herbicide you can use tillage and you know different planting methods so to speak but uh weed competitions first but the other one if and i'm wondering if this happened to you dan you if you plant those plants too thick um they'll get uh, interspecific competition. It's just they, they compete with each other for the resources you need um, to grow tall and they just just die out. They don't, they don't get to their full potential. So the best thing you can do on like an Egyptian wheat and sorghum screening is just make it wider than you originally thought and don't plant it as thick. When those plants mature and they get to that, whatever they're going to get six, 10, 12 feet tall, depending on the varieties you have, but you've got 10 foot section across. Oh my word, that's a barrier. And it's, it's fantastic. But you, when you look down at the soil surface, those plants can be six inches apart, you know, not crowded on top of each other. Um, and then the last thing would just be kind of like your P and K. And I always tell everybody when I talk about soil tests and, or uh, talk about food plots or doing food plots, like, you know, get a soil test because that's a fantastic starting point to at least know where you're at. And if you need to put fertilizer, lime, or, you know, how you need to manage your pH and those sorts of things. I mean, if you do that, that's your starting point and you kind of go from there, but, yeah. uh, that's kind of my take on the, the screening. Yeah, I, I did a, I did the pH test, um, and this was right along a crop field. And so it came, it came back at like a 7.3, I think, mm. and a 7.2. I mean, it was only like 
one tenth of a point apart from one spot to another where I wanted to plant. But um, I I really do think as soon as you said that you can crowd it out immediately, I was like, I guarantee that's what I did because Mm -hmm. I, I got enough seed and they basically just gave me a bag of seed. And I was like, man, these are the only spots I've got to plant. I'm going to load it thick. They're going to grow up thick. And even if they, even if, every other seed or every fifth seed takes with how many I'm putting out here, you know, something's going to grow. And I remember going back and checking on it after a couple weeks and then after a month. And it seemed like at the very beginning, uh, those grasses were growing pretty quick and then Mm -hmm. they just completely disappeared. And I was like, what the heck happened? Like, I don't understand. And I bet you that's exactly what I did is I crowded them out. Uh, and made them compete against each other not hard to do because it's, it's there's no science what there's really not much science behind uh, opening the cedar and just kind of let the seed fly it, it, it takes a knack it's like an art yeah yeah I, that's something i'm i'm hoping to get better at the only other thing i've thought about with the screen is we're actually gonna kind of almost do a privacy screen along the driveway um, to separate our property from the neighbors they're doing a fence row I thought about doing a row of cedars right there. Mm, nice. Cedars grow up really well. And so if I if I end up doing that, I may just put more of a permanent screen back there in the one in the one chunk of open field that I'm thinking about doing a food plot in and just do a cedar screen in between the the build site and the food plot site. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um I'm all for doing permanent screens like that. The thing I'll tell you and I caution anybody to do this is like when you go to do a permanent screen, like that's a, that's a bigger investment. That's a, usually a bigger financial and time investment and usually a little bit more maintenance in the beginning. So whenever you do that, you just better make sure that you do have it in the right place. Like I'd hate, like you did, you got this all planned out in year one. You're like, man, this is the way I'm doing this. I'm laying this property out this way and you do all this work. And then you start hunting it for a year, two or three. And you're like, you know, I really wish that I would have lined the food plot up in this orientation or I've learned too. There's some food plots that, you know, going into it, you think it might be the perfect spot and plot there at all, depending on the the orientation of the property, how deer maneuvering through that, how you access the property. I mean, if you're, if you have to walk around a food plot, every time you want to access certain parts of your property and you're chasing deer, every time you walk past that food plot, well, you probably shouldn't have had a food plot there in the first place. So yeah, that's the only thing I'd caution you, but I mean, I'd be all for using cedars and, you know, some kind of more permanent screening because man, once they're set, it's no maintenance. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, only having been on the property now a handful of times, I think it, it probably would be too early to do something permanent right out of the gate, but maybe after the first few seasons, I can do uh, more of a grass screen in front of the food plot until I figure out exactly where I want it to be permanently and then move that direction. Um, man, I appreciate you hopping on. I have one last question for you. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of opinions about this out there, but with the majority of the property being wooded mm-hmm. and a lot of it having mature canopy over the top of it, what would you recommend? as a food source in there would it be you know starting out by hinge cutting would it be clearing some clearing some openings in the canopy to where i could maybe get a food plot or just find 
a food plot or a type of seed that that grows well in the shade that is a loaded question um <laughs> you know it's a it's a it's a good question it's one that i've asked for a long time and every property is different so from my perspective said that you you've got a property on the southeast corner of area of hardwoods so let's just go with the assumption right now that those hardwoods the level really the same throughout everything if it's just a closed canopy forest oak hickory forest or something along through then from my perspective you just got to get sunlight the the floor so um in my if it's a big open hardwoods you don't really need to hinge cut because if you hinge cut you got to keep in mind you're going to have that giant canopy overhead and if you hinge cut a tree the idea of a hinge cut is to leave the the tree still attached as it falls and it's going to stay alive and it's going to keep the tree you know, moving nutrients and still growing uh, horizontally. And if you don't get enough sunlight to that tree when it's reaching the forest floor, the the trees there are going to kill it and it's going to die anyway. So from yeah. my perspective is, I think you need to just monitor your canopy. The more, um, the more your canopy staggers, so if you go from, you know, think about shrub height being, you know, let's just say head high, then you go to maybe a 15 year old chop off that's 20 foot high, then you get into spruces that are for or cedars in your case, you know, maybe they're 30 feet high, and then you get into hardwoods and they're somewhere between 75 and 100 feet high, and then you go back down to like a grassland level, like all that varying canopy height just means i think your property probably has the seed bed it needs to provide good quality browse it just needs to be promoted so maybe that means you just need to do a slight reduction in canopy via you know taking some some timber off the property some income maybe it's just as simple as i'm gonna go and cut a bunch of trees in this one pocket i'm just going to cut them i'm just, I'm just going to uh do a, a felling cut uh lay them over and they're going to rot on the ground but it's going to create a pocket of sunlight and uh you know maybe you do have to hinge cut you know maybe it doesn't sound like from your perspective but if there's properties that have zero side cover and they've got a couple of trees that are good quality hinge trees if you hinge them over that's just easy think from your perspective you probably are going to have to do some chainsaw work maybe there's potential for logging maybe there's not i always like to use the chainsaw to do two things steer deer movement is the biggest thing but when you're steering deer movement you're usually doing that a tree over blocking off a certain area that they're they're uh, maneuvering through creating a bottleneck and when you do that and you trees up in a little pocket they'll only go in there to a certain point well that's kind of like a utilization cage you get good quality stuff that regenerates just because the sunlight touches the forest floor and and boom you've got some good quality browse there um if you get a skitter in there to do some logging man the uh the, the tire ruffle some dirt up that's going to stimulate the seed bed and 
idea. So I'm not a big fan of just saying, well, you need to plant this, you need to plant that, you need to plant this. A lot of the time, I think you just need to manage what's there and promote the good and get rid of the bad. Um, you know, last thing I'll say, you said about uh, grass. I mean, a lot of people, when they see field and your property is kind of no different, and you see field food plot at that easy and it, a food plot might be the the perfect script but you'd be amazed how many places you go if you just get rid of those cool seeds let the soil do its thing i mean for very very cheap i'm, I'm, I'm talking like ten dollars an acre with herbicide if you just kill those cool season grasses and then just let forbs and browse and good quality stuff come up man, that's as good of a food plot as any. So, I mean, that's, that's a long answer to your question, but that's kind of my perspective. No, man, I appreciate that a lot. That's a lot of really good information. And um, gosh, I've got a lot of planning to do. It is going to kill me to be waiting uh, to actually like get boots on the ground and start <laughs> putting the plan into place until hey, I'm not even a full month away, but it's still, I'm already like chomping at the bit trying to trying to get the game plan together and then get in there and execute it as fast as possible. So uh, I, I really do appreciate you hopping on the call, sharing your input. And I know you've probably got uh, a full year's worth of podcast episodes that you could share advice with, with the listeners, share advice with myself. Um, but I'll let you go for tonight. I do want to give you an opportunity. You've got a lot of stuff going on right now and a lot of it, is revolving around agriculture or, you know, helping people with food plots, deer management, things like that. Where can people go to find you to listen along to your podcast? Yeah. So we, uh, again, I'm the host of the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast on Sportsman's Empire. So, you know, any place that you say this i think any place you can get uh, the nomadic outdoorsman you should be able to find the pennsylvania woodsman you know we're on the spotify the itunes google um but then we have our you know of course our episodes go out on uh, sportsman's empire network's website and uh, you can find us there i'm i'm uh, so i never did any social media i social media I, I don't have it down pat like this dan matthews guy i know <laughs> but no i'm trying to uh, so you can find us at pennsylvania woodsman podcast on instagram and facebook and you know right now since i'm walking fields all the time i'm trying to put some videos and pictures and just little tidbits out of stuff i'm seeing in a field if i think it's relevant to food i'm a year and uh, yeah, that's kind of the places you find me. But uh, no, thanks again, Dan, for having me. I appreciate it. I'm your property and how that all sets up. I'm sure you're going to have some good success. Yeah, I'll send. I guess the only thing I have a question about, though, is does that mean you're not going to be able to come out and go bear hunting this year? Oh, no, I fully intend on coming out to bear hunt this year. In fact, I've talked to multiple people over the past couple of weeks about bear hunting and I've never been like super amped up about it. And I am so excited to go chase bears. I had one guy that I talked to, he runs a bear outfitter in Manitoba. Nice. Uh, my buddy, my buddy Weston, he went up like just Southeast of Alaska to go bear hunting in Canada and got two with his bow from the ground and <sighs> getting all of these pictures and videos and 
like hearing the stories. I mean, Weston had a bear that the big one, the biggest one that they had on camera at that point, snuck around behind him, poked his head inside of Weston's ground blind, and he was face to face at two feet with this bear. Got spooked as soon as Weston started to turn. He goes out, gets on the logging road, and tries to cut it off and gets a shot and kills this bear. So all of that, I'm like, I'm like a kid at Christmas just waiting to open up presents and hopefully that presence that present is an awesome bear hunt. Yeah, real exciting. I told you that last time I've kind of been back on a bear kick here in PA. So yeah, like I said, uh that's uh so that my offer still extends. If you ever want to come bear hunting up here in Pennsylvania with us, you got an invite. I will I will plan on it and uh hopefully we can get you down here to Missouri, if not on my property, uh on another one to to do the sportsman's empire get together family reunion whatever you want to call it and then also for for some hunting sounds good to me dan awesome well thanks again mitchell and uh take care you too man and that is going to wrap it up for today's show i hope you guys enjoyed that because if i could think of a better podcast for this time of year um for my current situation especially and i'm sure there's those of you out there who you know you might be busy with work you haven't gotten out there what can you still do in order to prepare the ground or get a food plot in right away find a way to put a screen up um there's so many things and and that's where i'm almost having that paralysis by analysis like what do i do what's the first step but having a sounding board like mitchell and someone who gives great advice to to people like me who I don't have a lot of experience in this I've been deer hunting all my life and I know almost nothing about putting in food plots aside from videos that I've watched and so I hope that you guys can take this information translate it into healthy food plots better habitat for the deer or whatever species it is because a lot of these practices can apply across the board to multiple different game animals so hopefully you guys find success with that because Man, if I if I could just have like a tenth of the knowledge that he does, I feel like I could turn this tiny little 10-acre chunk in southeast Missouri into, sorry, southwest Missouri, into an amazing spot for deer activity. But thanks, Mitchell. Thanks for hopping on. That was awesome. And get out there, guys. Go put this stuff into practice now. If you haven't done it yet, It's not too late. There's always something that you can do. Hopefully you guys are taking advantage of that. Hopefully this greatly benefits you as I know it will me. And until next time, always choose adventure and God bless.